right, well, after a pausing our study of John for the holidays, I'm really excited to get back into it with you today. And since it's been a few weeks, what I wanna do is I want to review with you where we are in John's gospel. And in order to do that, I'm gonna use the familiar who, what, when, where, and why. All right, so it's been three weeks, so let's dive back into it. Who are we talking about today? We're talking about Jesus the Messiah, and his 11 disciples. You remember Judas has already left the upper room, gone out into the darkness, that's the understatement of the year, and he's gonna betray the Lord that very night. And so there's 11 disciples in this upper room. Okay, so what's going on? Well, it's called the upper room discourse. Jesus has already washed the feet of the disciples, Judas has left, and then, after Judas left, Jesus inaugurated the new covenant with the first celebration of the Last Supper. This is my body given to you. This is my blood uh, shed uh, for the remission of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And now, what is he doing? He's teaching um, this lesson in this upper room. When did all this occur? We believe it's the Thursday, uh, Thursday evening of what many people call Holy Week. And so Jesus will be crucified in just a matter of hours. Where? Somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. And why? And the big why is because Jesus knows that he's soon going back to the right hand of the Father. So he wants to prepare these 11 men to carry out his commission, which is to make disciples of all the nations. And so the Lord is very cognizant that in just a matter of hours, he's gonna be betrayed and arrested, illegally tried and condemned to death by the Sanhedrin. And so he wants to get one last lesson into the heads and hearts of the men that he called his friends. And I want you to imagine the scene, okay? Everybody always talks about making the Bible come alive. Let me tell you something, the Bible's already alive. The Bible's God's word. We're the ones that need to wake up. Okay, and so one of, the reasons, one of the ways we wake up and become alive to the word is that we picture the scene. I want you to go back in time. 2,000 years ago, put yourself in the sandals of, the up, of one of the disciples in the upper room. You're kind of standing there watching everything, all right? So I hope you're there. There's Jesus, the Messiah, and he's pouring out his heart to the 11. Who's among the 11? Well, there's Peter, right? He's probably loud, <laughs> probably laughing, um, he's probably joking around, whatever, he's a very outgoing guy, very self-reliant right now in this time of his life, very self-confident, right, I can take on the world, I'm better than all these other guys, and yet, he's about to deny the Lord, not once or twice, he's about to deny the Lord three times. And not only that, you got James and John over there somewhere in the upper room. And James and John, they're called the sons of thunder. Tells you a little bit about their personalities. And these are the guys who not too long ago, they wanted to call, can you believe this? They wanted to call down fire on a village of Samaritans. Wow. Talk about, man, what an attitude that would be. Call down fire on people? And not only that, there's Matthew. And Matthew was a former employee of Rome, and this guy had the audacity to collect taxes from his fellow Jews for the Roman Empire. And not just that, you got Simon the Zealot. And Simon was a former member of the Jewish Zealot Party, and before Simon met Jesus, 
he wanted to kill guys like Matthew. And not just that, you got uh, Thomas, right? We call him Doubting Thomas. Why? Because in just a few days on Sunday, he's going to cross his arms when people are trying to tell him that Christ is risen, and he basically says, I'll believe it when I see it. Right? And so you got them, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, James, Thaddeus, and you say, Pastor, these are the men that Jesus chose to carry on his mission to make disciples of all the nations? And the answer is yes. By the way, aren't you glad when it comes to picking his team to carry on his mission today, the Lord doesn't look at who we are now, he looks at what we can be in the future. Right? The Bible says this, there's not many wise, not many powerful, not many of noble birth that God chooses. No, God chooses those whom the world thinks are foolish to shame the wise. And God chooses those whom the world thinks are weak to shame the strong. And so if you're here today and the world thinks that you're foolish and you're weak, well, praise the Lord, you are a prime candidate to carry on Christ's mission and do his work. Why? Because listen, when foolish and weak people like you and I accomplish great things for God, guess who gets the glory? The Lord alone. And that's what it's all about. Because people who are wise in their own eyes and strong in their own eyes, when they accomplish something, they want the glory. And God's not interested. And so in our text today, let's talk about our text. You can divide our text today into two sections that describe two different groups of people. And you need to know that these two groups of people could not be more different from each other for one primary reason. The one primary reason the two groups in our text today could not be more different from one another is because one group received Christ and the other group rejected Christ. So the message today, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna spend almost all of our time talking about the first group. And then, because we're gonna be out of time by then, at the very end of the message, we're gonna spend just a few minutes on the second group, all right? So what's the identity of these two groups? Group one, it's all about Christ's friends. Who's that? It's the disciples. And we see that in verses nine through 17. Group two, that's Christ's foes. They're called the world. I'll define that here in just a moment. And you can see them in verses 18 through 25. All right, so we'll get into this in depth here in a moment, but I just want to show you one verse for his friends and one verse for his foes. Okay, so look at verse 15, speaking to his friends. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you, shout out the name, or the word, friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And so Jesus is speaking to his friends. But now regarding um, his foes, look at verse 18. Verse 18, he says, if the, what's the word there? The world. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
All right, so the question of the day today, I hope you'll be thinking about this throughout the message. Let's make personal application. Are you a friend of Christ? Or are you a foe of Christ? And so we'll, we'll return to that question at the end of the message today. But right now, if you're looking at chapter 15, verse 9, can you please say amen so I know you're there? Okay, and so Jesus says this to the 11 in the upper room. He said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, abide in my love. All right, so the first point I wanna make regarding Christ's friends is number one, Christ's friends are objects of his love. Did you see that in verse nine? Just look at the very first part of verse nine. He said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. All right, so here's the question. How much does the Father love the Son? Here's the answer. The Father loves the Son immeasurably, constantly, and eternally. <laughs> That's a lot of love. God is infinite, we are finite, so we can't even begin to understand how much love within the eternal fellowship of the Trinity the Father has for the Son. But we know that it's, measure, it's, it's, it's immeasurable, and it's constant, and it's eternal. All right, next question. How much does Christ love his friends? Answer, in the same way. Did you see that in verse nine? Everybody look at me for a moment. The reason I'm gonna keep repeating this and repeating this probably for the next 10 minutes is because I'm sure right now many of you are experiencing what I experienced this week. And that is, you read verses like verse nine, as the Father has loved me, so I love you, and it's kinda of like the truth goes, bing, right off your head. Bing, right off your head. And if it does get in your head, it has a really hard time going from your head down to your heart. All right, so let's regroup, everybody. If you're listening, say amen here. How much does the Father love the Son? The Father loves the Son immeasurably, eternally, and constantly. How much does the Son love his friends? How much does Jesus love you? Answer, immeasurably, constantly, and eternally. That's a lot of love. The Father's love for his Son is like this massive waterfall from an infinite reservoir that keeps flowing and flowing from the Father to the Son over and over and over again without end. Now here's a beautiful applicational truth for all of us. Jesus loves his friends in the same way. That means that Jesus' love for you is like a massive waterfall from an infinite reservoir that just keeps flowing and flowing over and over to you without end. Ladies and gentlemen, Christ loves you. And regarding this love, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this. He said, beloved, you do not, dare not, could not doubt the love of the Father to his Son. It is one of those unquestionable truths about which you never dreamed of holding an argument. I want you to stop right there for a moment. I would hope that almost everybody in this room, if not, my hope is that everybody in this room, everybody watching, would agree with that statement. That we would never doubt the Father's love for his son. But here's the big question. 
Can we accept the rest of Spurgeon's words? Check it out. He said, our Lord would have us place his love to us in the same category with the Father's love to him. We are to be as confident of the one as of the other. Do you see what's going on here, ladies and gentlemen? You and I, as Christians, we are to be as confident of Christ's love for us as we're confident that the Father loves Christ. That just as the Father's love for Jesus Christ, his Son, is immeasurable and constant and eternal, so that Christ loves us the same exact way. But here's my question. Why is it so hard to get this? Why is it so hard to accept this? Why is it so hard for Christians to be confident that Jesus really cares for them? Why? I think there's a whole lot of reasons why. We don't have time to cover all the reasons why. But let me take a stab at one of the reasons why. One of the reasons why a born-again Christian has so much time receiving the truth that Jesus loves them as much as the Father loves Jesus is because they had a father, an earthly father, or at least a father figure who was cold and unloving and distant. Or maybe dad wasn't in the picture at all. And so because you've never had that experience here on earth, it's hard for you to get your footing as to what I'm talking about this morning, more importantly, what Jesus was talking about to the 11 and to all of us about God's love. Ladies and gentlemen, can you please do me a favor? Can you not, can you, if you had a bad experience growing up with a father or father figure, can you not, can you not equate him with your heavenly father? Because the difference is night and day. God, if I'm talking to this specific group, God is nothing like your daddy. God is not cold, he's warm. God is not unloving, he's loving. God is not distant, he's very close. He wants you to relate to him in the way that Jesus is talking about right now. And so if I'm talking to somebody this morning, my prayer is that in 2023, as your pastor, my heart aches for you, okay? Um, I can't explain it, God gave me a pastor's heart, I care. And so I'm talk, if I'm talking to you this morning, my prayer for you as your pastor in 2023, that you would be able to accept and comprehend Christ's love more than you ever have before. That's my prayer. My prayer for you is like Paul's prayer to the Ephesians, that with the Holy Spirit's help, you would be able in 2023 to comprehend what is the length and width and depth and height of Christ's love for you. That's Ephesians chapter three. My prayer is that you would, it would dawn on you that nothing will ever separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Nothing, not tribulation, not distress, not life, not death, not Satan, not demons, not things present, not things to come, nor any other thing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ for you. Nothing at all, that's Romans chapter eight. And so listen, listen, if you're tempted to doubt Christ's love for you, think of the waterfall. It keeps flowing and it never ends. Now, how in the world should we respond to this kind of love? 
Jesus tells us now in verse nine again, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. How do we respond? Here it is. Abide, remain, stay in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus is our example. How many of you guys believe Jesus was fully man? Right, fully God, fully man. And so he set the example. And then verse 11, look at Christ's heart for you. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be half full. Is that what it says? No, look at his heart towards you. In 2023, he wants, end of verse 11, your joy to be full. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. I'll come back to that. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master's doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. All right, the second point I wanna make regarding Christ's friends, not only are they objects of his love, they're also obedient to his commands. Now, I want you guys to think with me here, okay? Because right now, I'm going off into territory that exposes the false gospel in America that if there's a God and if there's a heaven, if you're just a good boy or a good girl, you'll probably make it. That is a false gospel, okay? And so if you're listening right now, please say amen. amen. Okay, so listen, listen, listen. Jesus did not say we must obey his commands to earn his love. You guys with me here? Nothing in the text says that. Nothing in the New Testament says that. Nothing in the Bible says that. We don't have to keep commands to earn God's love. He simply said, end of verse nine, abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And so how many of you guys know there's nothing we could ever do to earn God's love? Nothing at all. And a little bit of a different subject here. How many of you guys know that there's nothing we could ever do to earn God's salvation? Nothing at all. A Christian is not saved by their meritorious works. A Christian is saved by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for them, period. Period. Okay? So I hope that if you're here and you think, well, if there's a heaven and there's a God, I'll be a good boy or I'll be a good girl and I'll probably make it in the end. No. False. Wrong. That is the religion of Cain. Way back in Genesis, when he tried to do a good work for God. No, 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 no. The only religion that is true is the religion of Abel, who brought a sacrifice to God, which pictured the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. I want you to, regard, regarding this, look, look at what John said. He said, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. All right, so let me stop right there for a moment. What are we doing now? So we're in John, the Gospel of John, and the same John wrote a letter at the end of the New Testament, so now the same John, we're looking at his writing. 
and we're tying it in to the gospel text. And he says, my little children, he's addressing the church, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I hope there's nobody here who thinks that the love and the grace and the mercy of God gives them a license to sin. Okay, I hope there's nobody here who believes that because I'm quoting Romans 6.1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the answer, church family? No. All right, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But John knew that we're human beings and we're gonna sin. And so he says, but if anyone does sin, good news, everybody, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All right, so what does the word propitiation mean? It's very simple. It simply means to appease. It means to satisfy. It points to the truth that Jesus Christ, as he hung on the cross, right, and took your sin and my sin and the sin of the whole world into his body on the tree as he was bleeding out because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. As he took our sins, what did he also take? He absorbed the wrath, the holy, just wrath of a holy God that should have been poured out on us. He accepted it in our place thereby appeasing and satisfying God. That's good news. What's the bad news? The bad news is the wages of sin is, help me out, death. What's the good news? That God showed his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our place. He was our substitute. He bore the wrath of God that we should have received in hell forever. And ladies and gentlemen, not only that, he then got up after he died and he marched out of the tomb, victorious over sin, death, and hell. And so the good news is that Jesus Christ, three lines up, the righteous, he's the propitiation, the appeasement, the satisfaction for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. And that's exactly what Jesus meant. Please look at verse 13. Verse 13, when he said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so I'm gonna say it again, because I really think that when you get on the topic of salvation, a lot of times it's bing, bing, right? And so a person cannot be saved by their works. They can only be saved by the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross if, can everybody say the word if, please? If they turn to Jesus Christ alone. When you turn to Christ, what are you turning away from? Your, yep. And you turn to Jesus Christ alone in repentance and faith, receiving him as the Savior and Lord of your life. That's when the blood is applied. That's when you're washed as white as snow. And that's when you can boldly come into the throne room of grace and call God your Abba, Father, your Daddy. He's a good, good God. He is a great Savior. He is a great hero. He is absolutely amazing. Now, different subject. What's the evidence of our salvation? 
How do we know we're saved? John answered that question in the very next verses. Check this out. By this we know that we have come to know him. Does this sound familiar? If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. You guys think I offend people in this church? Try the first century apostles. Try being in one of their churches. They didn't pull punches. If you say, I know him, but you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is earned. Is that what it says? No, no, no. In him truly the love of God is perfected. It's perfected, okay? So let's return back to the waterfall illustration. Year after year, right? The water flows down powerfully, crashing down into the river below. But here's the thing. Whether or not a person fully encounters the full force of that waterfall is gonna depend on their proximity to it. Okay, so check this out. My wife and I love to go up to the Smoky Mountains. We try to go there every summer. And one of the things that we love to do when we're up in the mountains, whether it's northern Georgia, east Tennessee, or western North Carolina, is that we love to go looking for, seeking for waterfalls. It's, it's, you should try it sometime. It's absolutely free. Okay, and so we love to find these nature trails. And it says, you're gonna go to a waterfall. And we always like to pick the ones that are a mile or less. Not five miles, 10 miles, God forbid 20 miles, no way. Um, mile or less. And then we find these waterfalls. We found probably 20 or 30 over the years. And, and I remember one year, uh, we took our youngest daughter, Mary, and her then boyfriend, Angel, who's now her husband, and another one of her friends, and we went up to the Smoky Mountains for, to uh, honor her graduation from high school, and we went on a nature trail, we found a waterfall. And my wife and I, very wisely, because we are older and wiser, we stood off just far enough where we could feel the mist in the air, but we certainly didn't do what those three teenagers at the time did. And they took off their, uh, the boys took off their shirts, and they ran underneath the waterfall and got completely soaked. And so if you ever have been to a waterfall and you felt the mist in the air, uh, just raise your hand so I know I'm kind of connecting with anybody here right now. Okay, so the idea here is this. You can get to a waterfall. You can remain just far enough from it that you just feel the mist in the air or you can get totally underneath that thing and get completely soaked. It's your choice. Now listen, if you're a born-again Christian, please hear me. The love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for you, it's like a waterfall, powerful waterfall flowing down and nothing can ever change that. But if you're listening to my voice right now, say amen here. Whether or not you fully encounter God's love and God's joy is gonna depend on your obedience to him. Whether or not you fully encounter God's love and his joy will depend on your obedience to him. Your obedience will place you under the full flow of his love and joy. You say, where are you getting this from? I'll read it again. In verse 10, he said this. 
Jesus said to the 11 in the upper room, if you keep my commandments, you will abide, live, remain, stay in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And these things, I want you to look at that water and imagine that's the joy of the Lord. He says in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's God's will for you in 2023. But it's contingent upon you keeping Christ's commandments. And sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, that is very close to the experience and the encounter you can have with the Lord. Now, sometimes Christians decide to distance themselves from the waterfall of God's love. You may know Christians like that, I certainly know some Christians like that. For whatever reason, something happens in their life, they misunderstand, um, they begin to blame God for whatever, and they begin to distance themselves from the waterfall of God's love. Okay, here's my question for you. Does that make the water stop flowing? In other words, the fact that they're distancing themselves from the waterfall of God's love, does that mean that God stops loving them, yes or no? No. And so I'm hoping that everybody right now in this room will shout no on the count of three. One, two, three. No. no. God's, the Bible says God is love. The Bible says that God is immutable. That means that God cannot change. What does that mean? That means that his love, like the waterfall, just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing. It's from an infinite reservoir of his love. And so his love continues to go down. But here's my prayer for you, born-again Christian. If you've distanced yourself from the waterfall of God's love, my prayer for you is that you would not waste another day, but that you would get back underneath the full flow of his love soon. Don't waste another day. Get back under the flow of his love and his joy. That's his will. He wants his joy to overflow from your life. You say, how do I do that? I'll read it again. <laughs> if you keep my commandments. By the way, you're not gonna know what Jesus' commandments are if you only open up the Bible once a week. You gotta open up every single day and read all the commandments throughout the New Testament of what Jesus wants you to do. And if you keep those commandments, then he says, you will, you will, it's a promise, you will abide in my love. And so, as I said, there's a whole New Testament filled with his commands, but the, the command that he highlighted in the upper room, which I wanna highlight right now, you can look at it in your Bibles or read it on the screen, Jesus said this, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. All right, let's, let's recap. Everybody look at me real quick. In the eternal fellowship of the Trinity, how much does the Father love the Son? Man, constantly, eternally, immeasurably. All right, how much does Jesus love his friends? The same way, constantly, eternally, and immeasurably. And now Jesus is saying this to you and me, Hey, this is my commandment, not a suggestion. Love one another as I have loved you. You say, that's impossible. 
I can't love people like Jesus loves me. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is impossible without the enabling power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. Right? Who lives in you, born-again Christian? The third person of the Trinity, who is God. And so, remind me for a moment, what's the first fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is? What's the second fruit of the Spirit? Love and joy. Love, joy. Is it your fruit or is it his fruit? His fruit. It's not your fruit. And so the idea is simply this. This is so simple. Christ loves us and receiving his love enables us to love other people. I'll say it again. Christ loves us and putting ourselves in that place where we're receiving his love, that's what enables us to love other people. Even unlovely people. Even who, people who cut you off on 995. Even people who blast you on social media. Even people in the church who are critical of you and gossip about you behind your back. Even those people, those people that you're just so angry at. Listen, Jesus said it. You love one another as I have loved you. He didn't say only if they treat you nice. So what does that mean? That means that we gotta do what he says. It's a commandment, it's not a suggestion. But ladies and gentlemen, get me. This is the idea here. He's not saying pull yourself up by your bootstrap, boys, and I want you to will this to be true. And you need to love people whether or not they tick you off or not. I'm gonna love you. No, that's not what he's saying. <laughs> Here's what he's saying. Back to the waterfall. Get underneath my love and let it just flow out of you all day long. At home, at work, with your kids, with your wife, with your husband, with your neighbors, everywhere. Love, love, love. Ladies and gentlemen, if we'll be this kind of church, we won't be able to keep people away. They'll just keep coming and coming and coming and coming and we'll do four, five, six, seven, eight services. I don't care. But let's love. This is the, out of all the commandments in the gospels, this is the one he emphasized that day in the upper room. Love one another as I have loved you. Look at verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Okay, so fruit of the Spirit, if you missed the message, go back three weeks ago and listen to um, the sermon on how Jesus Christ is the vine and we're the branches, and when we abide in him, we bear much fruit. By the way, he, did you guys notice? He said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So everybody look at me again. I wanna make it super, super clear to everybody. You did not initiate your relationship with the Lord. He initiated it. Okay, I'm gonna say this again. I know I quote it a lot, but I'll say it again, it's so good. To say you initiated your relationship with God is like saying a mouse goes searching for a cat. Anybody ever seen that before? No, it's always vice versa, right? Cat searches for the mice. You're the mouse, I'm the, I'm the mouse, we're the mice. God's the cat. Thank God he doesn't eat us. He loves us 
He saves us. You did not choose me. I chose you. It's called grace. Now, of course, your minds are going to free will, election, sovereignty, predestination. Okay, listen to this. Chosen but free, Dr. Norman Geisler. He headed up two seminaries. I went to one of them, and it is the book that defines what we believe here at Calvary Port St. Lucie regarding election, sovereignty, and free will. I'm not gonna preach a message on election right now. We're gonna continue on. But what happens, ladies and gentlemen, what happens when a Christian puts themselves in that place where they're receiving Christ's love and then they're loving other people and they're openly keeping Jesus' commands at home, at work, in the neighborhood, wherever. What often happens to that man or that woman or that teenager? Here's what often happens. Some people hate them. How many of you guys know our world has changed in the last 20 years? I'm 56 years old. I look back to when I was 36 years old, and I'm I'm telling you, it's a whole new America. And everything is changing very fast. And listen, if you and I put ourselves in the place in 2023 where we're receiving Christ's love and loving others and openly keeping Christ's commands, wherever we go, we're not embarrassed, we're not ashamed, we're living out loud for the Lord, there's gonna be some people who will hate us. It's just gonna happen. So what's the purpose of the upper room discourse? The purpose is preparation. Jesus is preparing the 11 for when he goes back to heaven to carry out his commission. And so what he wants to do is he wants them to know ahead of time before it happens, the world's gonna hate you. That's what he says in verse 18, right? Check it out. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. All right, so what's the world? We're gonna define it for everybody. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, it doesn't refer to planet Earth. It doesn't refer to nature. I'm very happy for, for, that God created planet Earth and I love nature. Okay, that's not the world. What does it refer to? Well, we're gonna get a little help from our friends, Dr. Chuck Swindoll. Jesus identified the enemy of God's kingdom as the world. It represents the fallen world system, which operates according to whose values? Satan's. And is subject to the curse of sin. That's the world. Warren Wearsby, a little more detailed. All the people, plans, organizations, activities, philosophies, values that belong to a society without God. And so the world is a godless system birthed in the heart of Satan, passed on to fallen man, and it's seen in man's philosophies, activities, and values. That's the world. And There's gonna be some people in the world when you're living out loud for Jesus that are just gonna hate you. They're gonna oppose you. They're gonna come against you. So it's better to know now and be prepared for it than for it just to happen. Because now now you know if you live out loud for Jesus, it's going to happen. Now what's the primary characteristic of a worldly person? One word, self. Yeah, pride is the same thing. (laughs) Because pride is what energizes the self. Self, the worldly person, it's all, he's all about, she's all about their power, their prestige, their pleasure, 
their prosperity. You know, no matter how it negatively affects other people, me, 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 me. I'm always on my mind, right? And by the way, this is irreligious people and also sometimes, oftentimes, it's religious people. Right? Who are the number one group of people that opposed Jesus during his ministry? The religious establishment. The religious guys are the ones who hated and opposed Jesus Christ more than anybody else during his ministry. And so it could be religious people, it could be irreligious people, but the number one word that describes these people is self, self, self. I don't care what it takes or what it does to other people. It's all about my promotion, me, me, me. And so Jesus is like, hey, guess what? When you spread my gospel, you're gonna collide with people who are all about themselves. And he said in the verse 18, if the world hates you, know it hated me before it hated you. Because here's the thing, Jesus confronted the religious establishment. And what did they do? They hated him, they persecuted him, they, they killed him. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So if you're worldly, hey, they're gonna love you. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're gonna persecute you. If they kept my word, they're gonna keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they don't know him, the Father, who sent me. All right, so the third point I wanna make regarding Christ's friends, not only are they objects of his love, not only are they obedient to his commands, but they're also opposed by the world. Now, the, one of the main reasons that the world opposes us, born-again Christians living out loud for Christ, one of the main reasons is because we're different. How many of you guys know that, that people love to make fun of people who are different? People are cruel, right? So if you're uh, going this way, but everybody else is going this way, they're gonna be wondering why you're going that way. This is what Jesus said, right? In verse 19, it's because we're different. If you were of the world, going the same direction, the world would love you. But because you're not of the world, you're going in a different direction, but I chose you out of the world, that's why the world hates you. Now you may be thinking right now, pastor, nobody hates me, nobody opposes me in my life. Well my question then is, search your heart, is that because you are worldly? Is it because you're like them? Now, if that's you, the shoe fits, wears it. Please, please listen to Paul's exhortation to you here. Don't be conformed to this world. What's the alternative? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay, so if you're a worldly person, everybody loves you because you're acting just like them, then, then, then please listen to this. Stop today being conformed to the world. And, and what's the decision in 2023? That I'm gonna be transformed, how? By the renewing of my mind. And what are we Christians supposed to be renewing our mind in? The word of God. 
Not just once a week, blowing off the dust from our Bible, coming to church, but every single day, we are renewing our mind in the Word of God. And what's happening is that as we're doing that, the Holy Spirit is transforming us and he's sanctifying us by the renewing of our mind in God's Word. And then we know his commands and we're filled with the Holy Spirit and then we begin to live it out and we prove, second line up, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And it is good. How many of you guys believe God is good? How many of you guys believe God's will is good? And it's acceptable and it's perfect. Now here's the lie of the devil. The, the lie of the devil is, man, if I do what this preacher is saying and I surrender my life to the God's will today, I'm gonna be absolutely miserable. Nothing could be further from the truth. His will, Paul said, is good, acceptable, and perfect. How many of you guys ever heard the phrase, Father knows best? He does. He's been around for a long, long time. And his will for you is good, acceptable, and perfect. It brings blessing into your life. If you will surrender to do God's will for the rest of your life, listen, you'll have so much joy and satisfaction and purpose in your life, you won't be able to know what to do with it. If you keep living for yourself, distancing yourself from the waterfall, that's the end of that. It may be pleasurable for a season, but the end of that is misery. So I wanna encourage you. Man, surrender to the Lord and surrender absolutely to his will. And guess what? All who live godly, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer Persecution. I don't care if you live in America or not. I know the level of persecution here is way different than, let's say, in Yemen or some other country, right? But here's the thing. If you live out loud for Christ, all who live godly in Christ Jesus, here's a promise, shall suffer persecution. But how many of you guys know when you're under the waterfall of God's love, they can persecute and hate you all you want. It doesn't matter because you're enjoying who God created you to be. Let's wrap it up. Verses 22 through 25. If I had not come and spoken to them, the world, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He's not saying that they would be sinless. He's saying they would not be guilty of the sin of rejecting their Messiah. But he came, he revealed himself with signs, miracles, and wonders, and so they have no excuse. Verse 23, whoever hates me hates the Father also. If I had not done among them the works, the miracle signs and wonders that no one else did, by the way, no one else did, you see that? No one did miracles like Jesus. They would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen, they've seen the miracles. And look at this horrible response. They still hated both me and my Father. Why? Because they're all about self. My power, my pleasure, my prosperity, you get in my way, you threaten that, I'm coming after you. Verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled, and now he's quoting from Psalm 35, 19. They hated me without a cause. And so the three points I wanna make about Christ's foes, and I'll put them all up there because we're out of time, is that they're disobedient to his commands, they're opposed to him and his followers, 
and they're, did you guys notice something here? Did you guys notice, as you're looking at the screen right now, that Christ's friends and foes have something in common? Did you guys notice that? Look at the third line. Both his friends and his foes are what? Can you just read it, please? Wow. Isn't God good? John 3, 16. God so loved the his enemies that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5, 8. God showed his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, enemies of Christ, Christ died for us. And so the final question that I'll leave you with today for you to think about is are you a friend or a foe? Now if you're a foe, if you're part of the world, if you're outside of Christ, good news. Jesus loves you wants to reconcile you to himself by his blood. But there's only one way to him. If, and it's a big if, <laughs> you turn to Jesus Christ alone in repentance and faith and receive him as the Savior and Lord of your life, then he will reconcile you. And then, and only then, you'll be a friend. Amen? Ministry team, come on up. As you're coming up, I want you to know that if, there's a lot of people in this room that if you're here and you're not sure if you have a relationship with Christ, listen, don't let yourself be distracted. Just listen, listen to me for a second. How many of you guys know that you can know about Christ but not know Christ? You can know about Christ in your head and not know him in your heart. You can miss heaven by 12 inches and die and wake up in hell. And hell's real. But guess what? Jesus experienced hell on the cross for you. He was separated from his father. He died in your place and rose again. And so get to know him. How? It's not meritorious works. It's his works. Receive him and him alone as the savior and lord of your life. We would love to help you do that. And so in a minute, Pastor Andrew's gonna close in prayer. And if you are not sure that you know the Lord, just come and talk to one of these ministry team members. They would love to be able to lead you to Christ this morning, here in January, before the year even starts. And then the evidence of your salvation will be a, a year of living for the Lord. So I wanna encourage you to do that. If you're here and you need prayer for anything at all in, in your life, uh, make sure that you come after the closing prayer and get the prayer that you need. And so thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you for wanting to learn his word. I love you guys, and um, we'll see you next weekend. God bless you.